you know, Jerusalem was a, was a day, this day was a day that uh, a holy hush settled upon the city. You know, and I, I sense something similar here. We, we should feel the weight of that, right, of that passage. <clears throat> Jerusalem on the day that Jesus died on the cross could be called a thin place. So this is a, uh, a phrase that's been used in church history. These ancient Celtic Christians, um, a few hundred years ago, they used this phrase, a thin place, to describe places in the world that uh, it seemed that the distance between heaven and earth uh, would shrink in time and eternity, would almost embrace. And th- these ancient Christians uh, called this place, right off the, the coast of Ireland, it's called Skelly Michael is the name of it. It was this island off the coast of uh, Ireland, and obviously the North Atlantic, where many people, they would go and they would pray. And they would meditate on Scripture at, at the time. They would record Scripture, so they would copy it, you know, word for word. And it was a very uh, place of solitude, of silence. And many people who would visit that place would call this place sacred because God transformed their lives there. And they would say it was a thin place. That's the language they would use because it was, it was as if heaven got closer in a sense. They, they felt the presence of God in a real way, not because it was localized here, but because something about the environment and something about the heart of people going there primed it to be a place where you encountered God through the power of the Holy Spirit. When you think about thin places, you might could say Bethlehem was a thin place. You might could say Eden was a thin place where God walked in the garden, right? Or you could say maybe Sinai was a thin place when God wrote on tablets of stone the Ten Commandments and the law or the upper room. That's the one that Luke probably wants to point, to, point us to. All of these are thin places. But you could also say that the air is thinnest between heaven and earth right here on the Mount of Skulls. Golgotha. Why did God not forsake his son? He did. He forsook his son. Did not heaven turn its back on its creator in a moment? It did. Is not the son of God rejected here? And he's not crowned in his authority, or so it seems. He's not rejoiced in here on this mountain. And yes to all these questions, he was forsaken He was rejected. He wasn't rejoiced in. Heaven turned its back. But in a sense, it is here that any relationship with God is made possible. It is here that any hope of a new heavens and a new earth, any hope that we could encounter God in his totality is made possible here. The scripture says very clearly, there's so many details to this passage, and we're not going to dive into them deeply. It's more of a read the account. And consider what this means, right? But the scripture says here, uh, I can't remember the verse reference just off the top of my head, but it says that the temple is torn, the temple curtain is torn into verse 45. In other words, God's presence prior to this was restricted to the temple, so it were. But by the power of the cross of Christ, God's presence would be available to all, not just in Jerusalem. Every place would be a thin place. If you have the eyes to see it, Jerusalem will be a thin place for you. Because you can encounter the power of God through the cross of Christ. Jerusalem will be a place that can change your life. And not just one time, but forever. 
more and more gazing, beholding the beauty of this murdered son on the cross can change you over and over again, progressively unto eternity, into his very image. We're going to stand face to face with him one day and everything's going to be made right. Everything's going to be fixed and you will have peace with God. You know, when you read this passage, there's, there's a few uh, observations you guys may have made. One is that for Luke, this is very bizarre. D- did that strike you as, you as you heard it, as you read this, this narrative here, how bizarre some of the details are and how Luke kind of puts them all together? They're random almost in some ways. They're dark, very much so, because God forsook his son on the cross. They're depressive. They're, they're full of mourning. They're full of heaviness. They're full of weightiness. Many of you guys may find yourself in that place right now in your life. Jesus sympathizes with you. It feels this way in this passage because it should be this way. The Son of God gave up his life. God turned his back on his son. You know, Luke is constantly this figure in the Bible who's trying to show how everything about the Scriptures is fulfilled in Jesus. He's doing it from the very first chapter to the very end. The last words of the book, not literally, but, you know, uh, I guess paraphrase the last words of the book, were that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything in the law of Moses and prophets. It's one of the last crying, dying cries of Luke in his gospel. And that's what he's trying to demonstrate this entire time. And Luke wants you to hear, hear how Jesus is the fulfillment of the very cries of the psalmist. In, verse, in chapter, Psalm 69 and Psalm 31, this is what it says in Psalm 31. Into your hand I commit my spirit. That's what Jesus said. He's the fulfillment of everything in the scriptures. Psalm 69, it says, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. Psalm 69, 3 says, I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for God. And all these cries that Jesus is making on the cross, just like the psalmist. Crying after God, but God is nowhere to be found. He's the fulfillment of everything that's going on in the Old Testament. Everything that's happening in the world is fulfilled in Jesus. So of course this is a bizarre moment. Of course this is a weighty moment because God died. It's weighty and it's heavy. But there's a particular way that you see this if you're a Christian. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says this. This is a verse that many people know. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I want to ask you, do you, are you gripped by the power of God when you encounter this passage? Are you gripped with the power of God? Consider it. Consider what it is that Jesus is saying here. What Jesus is showing us here in his death, in his life, in his resurrection, which we should consider about this, the crucifixion account, is in the context of resurrection. Do you see in the cross the power of God? Have you encountered the power of God in that way? Because there's a lot of crowds here at the cross that do not see the power of God. And there are a lot of people in the world who do not see the power of God on the cross. Do you see the power of God in Jesus Christ at the cross when he was crucified? I want to answer two questions for the remainder of our time here. And the first is this. What is revealed about Jesus here in this passage? And two, what is our response to me? 
Those are the two questions. I don't know if you guys have been watching the playoffs recently. Playoff football? Playoff football? Anybody watch that? Guys, I, I made the worst mistake of the year when I scheduled a leader, a church leaders meeting during one of the playoffs games. And like, of course, multiple people in that meeting made a comment about it. And I don't know if you guys have noticed, but there is this ad that's been consistent. It's this, this ad that shows all of these people who are going through different things in their life. And at the very end of it, it has this phrase that says, Jesus gets us. Right? You guys seen that? It's been playing in all the football games. And this comes on during most sporting events I've seen, at least for the last few, few months, because I feel like I watch every sporting event. So it is what it is. And um, what it seems to highlight here in this ad consistently is, in a modern way, the fact that Jesus came into the world as a man. And therefore, he understands us. That's beautiful, right? We've, we've, we've talked about that often here. He gets us. That's the name of the website. You can go to it. You can go to him because he understands your problems. This is a great example, I would say, of the world's view of Christ, generally speaking. For the most part, everyone knows Jesus exists. Everyone acknowledges certain things about Jesus. And Jesus is a positive. He's worth emulating. He's commendable. He's a figure in history that is honestly looked to with tons of respect as a whole, generally speaking. Many people of, across the world, maybe even here, you may not be a Christian, but here you are, and you don't struggle with us reading the Bible. You don't struggle with us reading out of the Gospels because many people across the world don't struggle with the Gospels, large portions of the Gospels. When you hear some of Jesus' teachings and you hear some of Jesus and see some of Jesus' miracles, right? It's, it's okay to read those, if anything, and instill some level of hope. Wow, this is amazing. Like, look at this ethic that he lays out for people. But there's a problem with this general worldview and general understanding of who Christ is. That ad misses it. He gets us. But he, that ad doesn't get Christ. What the Christian gospel proclaims, what the Christian gospel rejoices in, believes in, hopes in, loves, treasures, is a particular vision of God, not just a general consensus of the person of Jesus. It's a particular definition of Jesus that we must not miss. See, when we have a broad sweeping understanding of the scriptures and a broad sweeping understanding of Christ that is void of the details that are really laid out here in this passage, everyone loves him and everyone receives him. He's not offensive. And that's why many of us, when we go into our, our regular lives, we have conversations with people about Jesus. And it's a pleasant conversation. Mormons, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, animists, and even atheists do not struggle with Jesus. But the Jesus of Luke, Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus, the sacrificial lamb, the one who took away the sins of the world at the cross, sins that were our sins that at the cross we should have taken on ourselves and bore the wrath of God. The one who defeated the grave, the one who ascended to the right hand of God. This God, this definition of God demands a particular response. He demands it. This God demands worship. And he demands adoration, not because he needs it, 
But because as we just saw here, he deserves it. And this is the God that gets varied responses all throughout history and even now. And this is what I would say. He is not just a teacher. He is not just a prophet. He is God. He is God. And even further, this is what I want to offer us today. This definition. He is the crucified Lord. The crucified Lord. It's really important to see here. What Luke wants you to see as you read this narrative. The crucifixion, the crucifixion account, as I've already said, it doesn't stand by itself. Luke doesn't write this book by itself. But instead, we're just now getting into it in a sense. We're just now reaching the pinnacle to where we've got a whole line of all of these events that fall from the climax. Coming in the book of Acts, we're going to study that this year. The crucifixion account does not stand by itself. The crucifixion is a small part, well, not, maybe not so small, but a part of a larger narrative. Jesus died by crucifixion. He carried the full weight of our sins on his shoulders as a sacrificial lamb that made peace with God and man. It's incredible. But he does not stay dead. He does not stay dead. He rises from the grave and Luke writes the crucifixion account with this end in mind. And therefore, he is not just a man who died and that should be remembered for, a, for this valiant sacrifice that he laid his life down for, right? We, we do this with soldiers and heroes from the past, rightfully so. We remember, we memorialize, we, we think, we, we're thankful for all of these things that happen. We have holidays for people like this, Martin Luther King Jr., Memorial Day. Wonderful holidays that you should celebrate, and others. But the world wants us to view Jesus this way, that way. Hey, remember him, look at what he did. The world wants you to acknowledge Jesus insofar that you appreciate, you celebrate on a few holidays, but that's the extent. Luke shows us that Jesus did not just die as a sacrifice for our sin, but he died as a sacrifice for our sin and rose again as a son of God. And therefore, he is the crucified Lord of Lords right now. This account at the end of Luke 22 frames it the way we should see it. Look at, uh, at the end of 22, verse 66 through 70. This is what it says. And when day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chiefs and priests and scribes. And they led him away to their council. And they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. And he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said that you say that I am. And it continues. Furthermore, in eternity, we will not just worship the Son of Man in glory, but the Son of Man in suffering who reigns in glory and majesty now. This is really important to see. This, this is what I mean. Jesus will always proudly wear the title of sacrificial lamb that was slain for the foundations of the world. This is important, guys. Even as king, even as glory, he's a crucified Lord. The crucified Lord of Lords. Even as he comes to judge the living and the dead, you're going to know him as a lamb. What we learn about Jesus here is what we will always rejoice in, always celebrate, and always acknowledge about Jesus all throughout eternity. What we learn about Jesus right here. John chapter 20, verse 27 through 28. It's account of Thomas who was doubting. He sees Jesus, and Jesus goes up to Thomas. He goes, hey, Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. 
See the holes in my hands. See the side that's pierced. Place your hand in my side. He looks at Thomas. He says, do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answers him and says, my Lord and my God. Jesus is presented as a crucified reigning Lord right there. Not a man who died in the past that we should look to and remember. But the crucified Lord of lords and King of kings who is reigning right now. And we deserve, he deserves our worship. Revelation 5 verse 6 says this. Between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. When Jesus reigns in eternity, we're going to remember his sacrifice. Revelation chapter 5 verse 12, it says, worthy is the lamb who is slain. I want you to consider this, this, this view here. That Jesus in eternity is presently reigning as a lamb who was Past tense, slain. Tyler always makes fun of me because I have a grammar lesson every single week. Presently reigning as having been slain in the past. He's a crucified Lord. What Jesus accomplishes at the cross is something that's going to define us and define him for all of eternity. And we will never get enough of it. Because it is the power of God for us. Revelation 5.12 says that worthy is the lamb who was slain. And because he was slain, because the lamb was slain, he's deserving of power. He's deserving of wealth. He's deserving, deserving of wisdom and of might and of honor and of glory and of blessing forever. And we're going to give it to him. Revelation 13 verse 8 says this, talking about the Antichrist. Everyone who doesn't, everyone who dwells on earth will worship but everyone whose name has not been written before the foundations of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Before the foundations of the world, Jesus had in mind this moment in Jerusalem. Before the foundations of the world, Jesus was the sacrificial Lamb who was always going to be our sacrificial Lamb. God was always going to relate to us on the basis of the, son, the sacrifice of His Son. Always. And in this picture of God laying his life down, we have the pinnacle of his glory. Stare at it. See him. Oh, Christian who's discouraged. See the Lamb of God who's come and take away the sins of the world. When you look throughout history at different kings and rulers, almost always the legitimacy of that king's authority is built off of victory in battle. They're known as king because of what they've conquered. A good example of this is in the Old Testament. King David, his subjects, always remembered the victories that he won over the Philistines and the other armies as a way to legitimize his throne. As a way to legitimize his authority, Jesus is the same way in a sense, but even more. As the King of kings and as the Lord of lords, he rose from the dead, he defeated death, the ultimate enemy. Our greatest enemy. And he wears the battle scars of crucifixion on his hands and his feet. Even now, in eternity. Because we believe that he physically rose from the grave. And he is the crucified Lord who has proven to be the one worthy of all of our worship. And all of our adoration. Is the only one who can make, make peace with God. He's the only one who can make peace with God. And forever, we will look to Jesus as the crucified Lord of Lords. Now... How should we respond to him? How should we respond? As they asked Peter, what must we do? 
Francis Schaeffer says, how then shall we live? The cross of Christ in the context of this beautiful story of redemption, the gospel, that is offered to us, an invitation to us right now that we can experience right now. This cross, the cross of Christ, demands a response. It demands a response. If Jesus is in the grave, embrace whatever Jesus you want to embrace. Whatever makes you feel good. If Jesus is in the grave, Paul says, we're the most to be pitied because we put more weight on our shoulders than anything. And it's true. If, he, if he's still in the grave, then he's a man to be memorialized and his table is a moment to memorialize him. And this gathering is a, is a moment for you to feel better about yourself. But if Jesus rose from the grave, that is not enough. And that is not what we celebrate when we gather here. This is not trivial. This is not past-oriented, but past, present, and future-oriented. Everything about your life is implicated if Jesus is the crucified Lord. Everything about it. I want you to think about your life. Because in America, and probably other places as well, we're really good at saying the things, but then in our everyday experience of life, there are, more, there are places in our heart that are off limits to God. Mm. Hey, look, I'm going to go to church. I'm going to do the church thing, but like, I'm probably not going to read the Bible. Okay, that's a, that's a baseline thing. You know, not, not that sacrificial, I guess you could say. Or, look, I see the call of the Great Commission to go into all the world and make disciples. And Lord, you might be calling me somewhere long term. But at the end of the day, I've got a job here that's making great money. And we're just going gonna to chill out right here. The vision of God that we just saw as the crucified Lord in this passage implicates your entire life. If you've received it. As I said earlier, it's not enough to acknowledge him. Even football TV acknowledges him. He gets us. The world does that well. He's generally accepted in certain ways all over the place. But the claim in this passage that Luke is demonstrating that he is the crucified Lord of Lords reigning right now on his throne in his crucifixion is key. It is his exclusivity that is important. How do you see him? How should we... Respond to him in this way. And the beauty of Luke's gospel that I hope to demonstrate, and I'm not going to do it completely because there's so many characters, this entire chapter demonstrates how we should respond to him. I think this question is really at the heart of what Luke desires for us to see as he wrote his gospel. One quick observation you might make about this passage is how many people are actually involved here? Man, Verse after verse, it skips around and you've got these soldiers and another group of soldiers. Then you got women here and then you got Pilate and then you got Herod and then Herod's soldiers. And then you got Joseph of Arimathea and then you got the two criminals on the cross over and over again. And then a soldier at the very end who's, pra who's praising him. And then you got the, the disciples watching from afar. There's so many different characters here that are watching and even passively or actively participating in the death of Jesus. It's a public spectacle. And Colossians says that. 
That's what God intended it to be. For the world to witness and see the greatest moment in history and the greatest defeat of the enemy. And there are many participants and observers. And this is not coincidental. This is what Daryl Bach, he's a, a, a commentator on the book of Luke. He says this, the, Luke, the story of Luke, and specifically Luke's story of the cross, is filled with a microcosm of reactions to Jesus. All these people are responding. Women are weeping. Leaders and thieves are mocking. A thief believes. Some watch him. Creation testifies to him. As the curtain, as the curtain is torn in two in the temple, a soldier sees all of this and he confesses Jesus to be innocent. Or another way you can translate that is justified. Scripture also testifies in this passage implicitly. Scripture is testifying to the fulfillment of what takes place as Jesus suffers the death of an innocent, righteous one with allusions to psalms about lament or suffering. As we've already said, Psalm 69, Psalm 31. What this chapter shows us is that Luke is beckoning and demanding us to respond. He's saying, don't just sit with this information. Don't just look at this, uh, at this and memorialize it. Don't just go on with your day. Respond. Receive him. It's asking us, what will your response be to the cross? What will it be? How, what will you do with this? The God who died and the God who lives and the God who will come again. What will you do with him? And this is what we see. And this is, I'll spend the rest of our time on these, these three camps. Some at the cross reject him by not receiving Jesus for who he says that he is. Some reject him. Two, some are apathetic towards him. And three, some seek after him. You see this play out today in contemporary culture in many ways that Jesus is rejected. He's not God, and therefore he's not honored as God. His teaching and his kingdom is ridiculed and mocked. And Romans chapter 1 tells us this. It says, although they knew God, they didn't honor him. They didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their hearts were darkened. And Jesus is on the cross, hanging on the cross, and he says, Father, forgive him, for they know not what they have done. So why would he say that they need to be forgiven if they don't even know about it? How can forgiveness be given to someone if that person doesn't know that they are sinning? That plays out in our home on a regular basis with our kids. You know, like... Someone doesn't think they've done anything wrong. Or honestly, their social awareness, you know, might just not be up to par. And they have done something wrong. But how can you punish them when they don't understand it? And what I think is at the very heartbeat of what Jesus says when he hangs on the cross, he looks at the crowds who are actively per persecuting him, killing him, mocking him, beating him. And he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. What he is saying is, Father, forgive them for they should know what they have done. They should know what they have done. Romans chapter 1 says it so clearly. They knew God and they rejected Him. They knew who God was. Paul says everyone has a base knowledge of who God is. No one, no one is, without, is without excuse. Everyone is without excuse. No one can say I did not know. They knew God and they knew that He was hanging on the cross. So Jesus, in His gracious, merciful fashion, says even those who were rejecting me, even those who are not receiving me. He says, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. 
That's how far his heart goes towards you. He's all in if you'll receive it. But the reality is, this exclusivity will not be received. Because at the end of the day, to receive an exclusive crucified Lord is to dethrone whatever else stands in its place. And the reality is there's many who are going to come. There's many who are going to be in the midst of God's people. There are many who are going to hear the gospel just as there were on this day. And they're not going to be able to receive it for who he is because they're not ready to step that deep into this commitment. It's the reality. It's the reality of, of Christianity. It's the reality of the gospel. Every single time it's preached, there's haters. There's cursors. There's revilers. Look at the thief on the cross who in his death and in his judgment as the wrath of God is being poured out upon him, he still looks at the Son of God and he reviles him and he mocks him. The reality is apart from a work of Christ, apart from the work of Christ being applied to your heart, you cannot come and receive that gospel because you're, you can't get over your own sin. You love it. But this is the beauty of the Christian gospel. The power of Christ is enough if you can believe in him in faith. If you believe in him, if you receive him, it is enough. So what we do as the church, we proclaim the gospel into the world. We proclaim it to the ends of the world. We debate and we herald this good news until the last day before Christ comes, knowing that in the preached word, people will come and receive him because that's how powerful the gospel is. But it's not because of how great your arguments are. Some will reject him by not receiving Jesus for who he said that he was. But here's the second camp of responses that we see. Some, and this is where the scripture calls us to be watchful, some will be apathetic. Why is it that even moments ago as the greatest story of the universe is being read to us, my mind, I don't know if you are the same way, your mind is wondering to whatever else is going on. Your mind is thinking about whatever's for lunch. Your mind's thinking about what's going to happen this week and all the stresses that you carry. If this narrative shows us anything, it's that this camp that so, so many of us exist in of knowing the truths of the gospel, knowing what the Bible says about who God is, Knowing the radical demand that discipleship calls on our life. If this scripture shows us anything, is that this camp of apathy is not a category of scripture. The cross does not allow you to remain neutral. Neutrality, indifference, apathy to the things of God, and particularly regarding the cross of Christ, is a false dichotomy. It's a false dichotomy. And, and guys, apathy is an enemy to Christ. Apathy is an enemy to Christ. Our contentedness with living through the rhythms of life and being called to repentance and hearing the gospel and not being stirred at heart is a major issue. I pray today that as we, as we read this passage, this 
horrible, bizarre, overwhelming passage of the horrors of what Jesus carried on behalf of your sin, that it would waken you up, right? That it would awaken your, your heart would awaken that, that, that wherever you're asleep in your life, that it would just be stirred up and be like, wake up to the beauty of Jesus. Wake up to Him. See Him in all of His, in all of his glory. See Him in, in, in how much that he has, he has done for you. See what, how you do not have to walk in sin anymore. You can be free from that through the power of Christ because that's how victorious it is. Are you apathetic to God? Are you apathetic? I think if we're honest, someone answered yes to that. I think if we're honest... We need, to, we, need, we need to look at this and, and realize that we're the ones at the, at the cross who see the horror of Jesus and go home and live their lives. Let that not be said of us. Church, I pray, God, that... I mean, I pray this right now. God, would you please wake in our hearts, Lord? God, for those here whose hearts are cold towards the things of God. God, awaken our hearts, Lord. Jesus... Move in this in our midst right now. I pray every person here would have such a big radical vision of God in the gospel, the God who died and the God who rose from the grave and the God who will return, that it drastically calls them to a lifestyle of repentance and mission like they've never encountered before in Jesus' name. Do you hear this passage and do you quickly seek out other things? The Bible would caution us as Christians to be watchful. Listen, all throughout the scriptures in the New Testament, we have constant warning. And that is God's grace for us. You can say, Alex, man, your, your tone right now, your tone is harsh. The Bible's tone is harsh in a lot of ways. And it's God's grace that you can hear the call to repent and be forgiven. It's God's grace that you can hear the call to forsake your family, forsake your life that you've built, forsake everything for the sake of knowing Christ. That's God's grace on your life. God's grace is not the message that, hey, he gets us. God's grace is not the message that, look, if you'll take all of your problems to him, he'll make your life great. God's grace is... Every question you have is answered in the crucified Lord. Repent and believe in Him. Repent and believe in Him. Do not let the pleasures of the world lull our hearts to sleep to the things that are at best secondary. Do not let it happen. Let us be a church that constantly, at all points, are calling one another back to this radical big vision of the crucified Lord. At Jerusalem, let us be a church that's constantly looking at one another and saying, are you apathetic? Wake up to Jesus. Wake up to him. Receive him in all of his power. Receive him in all of his glory. Receive him for who the scripture says that he has received the crucified Lord. There's one last camp here. And it's this. Some saw the cross of Christ as the power of God. Some saw the cross of Christ as the power of God. I was talking a little bit earlier about these warning passages. I was talking earlier about how the scripture calls us to be watchful all throughout. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, trembling. And I think it's really interesting as you look here in verse 27 of chapter 3. It says, there followed Jesus, this great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. 
They loved Jesus so much that this, this moment that they didn't understand the inscrutable wisdom of God whatsoever. They didn't realize that this was necessary for their own salvation. All they saw is the horror of this perfect, innocent man who was totally righteous, suffering for the sins of all humanity. And they were, they were weeping. They were lamenting. Tears are not necessarily a spiritual fruit. But when you grasp the weighty realities of the cross, and when you grasp the weighty reality of who God is, and your sin, and Jesus, and eternity, we're often led to tears. We're often led to tears. And let me tell you right now, when that happens in your heart, and your heart is awakened in a particular way of mourning, and lamenting, and weeping because of what you know to be true in God, that's a gift from Him. It's a beautiful gift from Him. That you can see with clarity and you, and you would be so moved at heart that you're physically showing it and demonstrating it. I'm not saying force yourself to cry. I'm saying know and love Jesus so much that that's the fruit. That that's the fruit. Know and love him so much. Know him so deeply to where like these women didn't have a category to live without him. So they're mourning and weeping and lamenting. Know the righteous one who is so righteous that didn't have a category for someone suffering on this level for something he didn't do. Know Jesus so much who doesn't have a category for what life would be without Jesus by their side. Know him on a deep level, on a level that leads you to feel him in your heart on that kind of level. See the horror of the cross in Jerusalem. See it. See the crucified Lord in all of his glory. Are you filled with these emotions, are you filled with that type of faith that can't live without him? That identifies, as Paul says, with him in his death so that you can be named among him and with him in his resurrection. Many people who received Jesus, many people today who received Jesus, many of you who have received Jesus, I have witnessed, respond with tears. And remember these women who responded with tears, who worshiped Jesus. Remember the, the woman in Mark, I think it's Mark chapter 12, when the woman cries in worship so wonderfully that there's enough water and enough tears to wet the feet of Christ. Are you filled with mourning and lament when you consider the cross of Christ? That is, that is a fruit of salvation. When you experience the cross of Christ, not necessarily that in, a, in a way that leads you to tears, but in a way that you get it. That Christianity is not a theological category. Jesus bore the weight of my sin, and yet on a heart level you're unmoved. Christianity is seeing what Jesus accomplished on the cross, and that being real. Well, I was separated from God. I was separated from all the blessings of God. I was the one numbered in Romans chapter 1 among all of the Gentiles who were living in the futile of the, the futility of their minds. They were totally darkened, the scripture says. Totally darkened. Living in the futility of their minds, not having a category for God. And even though they knew on a, on a deep, maybe subconscious level, that God existed and was in the world, they chose not to worship Him. Be so moved that at, at the cross, God overcame that. Do you feel those realities? Do you feel the weight of your sin? Do you feel the beauty of God in Christ? Do you feel the hope that we have in Him now? Which leads me to the second question of how some saw the cross of Christ as the power of God. 
Are you filled with praise as you consider the horror of the death of Jesus? This is what's really interesting in verse 47 in chapter 23. Centurion man, he saw what had taken place. He saw that Jesus died. And the scripture says here that he praised God. He praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. That feels paradoxical. But only if you don't see and know Jesus is the crucified Lord. If Jesus is the crucified Lord, then the death of an innocent man on the cross leads to praise. If Jesus is the crucified Lord who didn't stay in the grave, but rose from the grave, and now Hebrews says that his blood, because he is, he's risen from the grave, speaks a better, a better word than the blood of Abel. In the Old Testament, the scripture says that Abel, uh, uh, Abel was killed by Cain, right? And Cain, Cain, uh, when, Abel, when Cain killed Abel, the scripture says that his blood was crying out from the grave to God. For generations, his blood was crying out to the grave. Now I want you to consider that. Hebrews takes it and says, just as Abel's blood was crying out to the grave to God, go look it up, Genesis 5. Hebrews says, just as Abel's blood was crying out, Jesus' blood, because he rose from the grave, speaks a better word with better promises that will never be robbed. That's how the centurion can say, praise God. The innocent man died for my sin because he's not in the grave anymore. He's risen from the grave at the right hand of God. I want to conclude with this story. It's kind of a, uh, I couldn't miss this point. So consider it an addendum, uh, an appendix, Whatever, but this will be the conclusion. Before I say it, I want to say this. I hope that you have been moved at how central this narrative is to your life if you believe in Jesus. It's central. Look, nothing about your life matters except for this. Can I say that with total confidence? Nothing matters in your life but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So as Paul says, long to know Him and Him crucified. This passage ends though, right? With Jesus being buried. It says in verse 50. There was a man named Joseph. He was from a Jewish town of Arimathea. Arimathea is like one of my favorite words to say in the New Testament. It just flows off the tongue. He was a member of the council. He was a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And this is what it says here. He was looking for the kingdom of God. I don't want to miss what's, what Luke is showing us here. He was looking for the kingdom of God. Verse 52 says, this man went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus and Pilate gave him the body of Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea, he comes to Pilate, asks for this body. And as we just saw, he's described in this text here of a man who was seeking after the kingdom of God. He was seeking to find it. He's hearing this man walk around talking about the kingdom of God, which is, is a theme that's laid out pretty consistently in the book of Luke. And if anything, we have a category for it because Luke's saying it's the fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament. So Luke is showing us that how Jesus is the fulfillment of that to an extent. And what Luke does in this passage, in the next verse, after saying this man's looking for God's kingdom, Luke presents him as having found it. Pilate gives him the body of Jesus. As we conclude today, I, wanna, I want to end with what I think one of major, the major points of Luke's 
gospel is. The kingdom of God is about the person of Jesus. The kingdom of God is found in the very body of Jesus. There are a lot of things that mark the kingdom of God. Hey, man, one day there's going to be no suffering. One day there's going to, justice is going to roll down like a river, the scripture says in Amos. There's going to be peace, and that peace is going to permeate the entirety of creation. I uh, had a, some Jehovah's Witness come to my door the other day, and, the, and what they wanted to talk about is how they looked at me and said, hey, do you long for a day where there won't be any war? I was like, yeah. <laughs> do you long for a day where, you know, everything will be made right, all your relationships are okay? I was like, 100%. That's going to be amazing. I'm arguing right now with my wife. <laughs> like, please. And he said, that they said, well, when do you think that day will come? I said, when Jesus returns. Amen. And the conversation went downhill after that. But <laughs> there will be peace permeating the entirety of the creation. There will be unbroken fellowship with God and man. There will be joy and eternal life. All of these things are great. But it must be clear, these are the benefits of the kingdom of God. It's not what defines the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God finds its definition through and in the culmination of the person of Jesus Christ. For us to be a kingdom church is for us to be a Jesus-centered church. For us to understand how we're to bring justice and mercy and to bring love to our city is for us to be squarely centered and looking and fixed upon the person of Christ. He's the substance of the kingdom of God. Joseph had the kingdom of God when he received the body of Jesus. The major point I want us to see here is that as this passage ends, there is not a category, and I hope that this has been made clear, there's not a category of Christianity that exists that is not oriented around the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. There's no Christianity. Jesus is not a fixture. He's the centerpiece. Even Jesus' words about the ethics of the kingdom of God that he gives us in the book of Luke, and we've looked over some of these the last 18 months or so. He says incredible things about how we live our life. Incredible things. But they're all given to us so that we can see how Jesus is the one who perfectly embodied this ethic in a way that we could not. And therefore, as we receive him into our lives, he does a work that only he can do, and he places this ethic in our hearts and into our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit. But the kingdom is about Jesus Christ. Life with God and life in Christ, which is what the New Testament says, is through the cross. It is through our willingness to identify our lives with Jesus' death on the cross because what we see along with some of the crowds, is worth our life. How do you respond to the cross today? It demands a response. Are you an enemy of the cross? Probably the most important question, are you apathetic to the cross? Or do you see a vision that's worth everything about who you are because of how great he is? Do you see it? Seek him today. Seek him today. Seek after the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you, and the kingdom of God is Jesus Christ. Invite the band up, and we're going to sing a song before uh, we go into communion, and then uh, we will we'll conclude our service shortly after. So.
Jesus, we, uh, we love you, Lord. Thank you for the scripture. Thank you for the wonderful and horrible details of this passage. And I just pray that it would uh, really resonate deeply with us. God, where my words fall short, God, where they're insufficient, because it's like nothing I say could ever communicate the glory, the glory of who you are. God, nothing I say, God. We're, we're desperate for you. We're looking for you to move in our hearts, Jesus. And I pray right now, God, even as I, as I pray right now, you would fill this, this church, you would fill each individual with the, with the power of the Holy Spirit to comprehend the deep things of God. You, you tell us that, that, that with the Spirit, deep calls too deep, Lord. And Lord, I pray those deep things, God, the deep things of, of, of really who Christ is, of, 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 of the unveiled uh, revelation of Christ would be clearly seen in our hearts right now. And it would lead us to devotion, obedience. It would lead us to seek Him with tears and lamenting and repentance. It would lead us to hope-filled mission and kingdom living. Jesus, center this church upon your work. In your name we pray. Amen.